Hey, Sarah here. Summer is fast approaching, and here's what I propose. A relaxed and simple summer that offers just enough structure to keep those long, sticky days from melting into chaos, and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. Also, fairy tales. Lots of fairy tales. (laughs) I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Well, hello, hello. Sarah McKenzie here. I am delighted to be with you today for a special episode of the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. Season 11 doesn't actually begin until August 1st. But I have something extra special for you right now while you wait. I can't wait to share it with you. We've got some fun announcements. For one, season 11 is going to be a weekly podcast. Yep, you heard that right. You've been asking for a long time and we're happy to make it happen. You can expect a new episode of the Read Aloud Revival podcast every single Tuesday. That's pretty exciting. And how we're going to do it is we'll be alternating between our normal interview episodes, the kind you're used to if you're a regular listener of the Read Aloud Revival with mini episodes. So every other week will be a regular episode, anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes long, usually an interview conversation between me and a guest. And every other week will be a mini episode, 10 to 15 minutes, a short episode where I give you some great book recommendations, some good tips and other insights that will help you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Sound good? I'm excited about it. It all starts August 1st. You aren't going to want to miss out on our upcoming season. We've got some really awesome guests lined up, some really great things just planned. I'm excited. I don't want to reveal too much. There's some exciting things just around the corner. But to be sure you don't miss a thing, make sure you're subscribed by email. We send our very best book lists, free resources, all of our best stuff goes out by email. If you're not on the list, you are missing out. So go to readaloudrevival.com, click the big green button there to join the list. You'll start getting those excellent resources to help you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids right away. In the meantime, though, I have something special for you. So today, some of my very favorite authors for children, Jeannie Birdsall, the New York Times bestselling author of the Penderwicks series, and N.D. Wilson, the bestselling author of the 100 Coverage Trilogy, did an exclusive interview at Anderson's Bookshop in Illinois. And because Jeannie Birdsall and Andy Wilson are as awesome as they are, they wanted you to get to hear it too. When they asked me if I wanted to air the interview on the Read Aloud Revival podcast, yeah, I couldn't say yes fast enough. Now, this is actually a video interview. And if you'd like to watch it, go to readaloudrevival.com and look for the special edition podcast featuring Jeannie Birdsall and Andy Wilson. If you're listening to this episode long into the future, you're going to want to look under season 11 to find that. If you're listening to this when it's fresh, you should see it right away when you visit readaloudrevival.com. You can watch the video there, but you don't have to watch it. So if you're folding laundry, driving the car, or just otherwise hustling around town or around the house, you may just want to listen and nothing will be lost on you by doing so. And if that's the case, get ready to be delighted. That's what we're airing today in this special edition podcast. Here's the exclusive interview with the amazing and delightful duo, Jeannie Birdsall and N.D. Wilson. Right. I'm, I've been hanging out with him and his wife all day. She keeps calling him babe. And so, <laughs> babe, she said, do you have your, do you have your water, babe? Right, that's it. Do you realize you do that? This is Heather. 
he also writes some grown-up fiction about his ardent Christian faith. Hopefully not fiction. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I do write for grown-ups as well. Yes, you write for grown-ups as well. He's also a budding filmmaker and has is going to be making films and they're going to do extraordinary things. Yes. We hope so. But the personal story is that Nate and I met when we were on a panel together in Atlanta and you say it's 2008, I don't really remember. I think it was 2008. Yeah. And we were it was a very boring panel and then we incredibly were incredibly boring. Incredibly boring panel. And then we had lunch together and there were all these people and I remember they kept trying to give me meat and they kept saying, Isn't is there no non meat food in Atlanta? I made a big fuss ever, but you've forgotten that. Which I is remember. really <laughs> you, remember, you remember. And then we were talking about C. S. Lewis and we one or the other of us said, But have you read his grown up trilogy science fiction? And we went that hideous strength and went boom to each other. And that was it. Yeah. So Jeannie and I shared a boring panel and then had a phenomenal time. Mm -hmm. And I've done a lot of things since then, as has she, and have never quite had the same experience again. No. Where we just had a blast talking. And, And we ended up talking publicly as well in a way that maybe wasn't as interesting to everybody else. Uh, but we had fun. We had fun. We, we had a great deal of fun. And, and Eric Roman, who is a local guy, most of you probably know him, picture book artist, we got him so wound up, he dropped. They only gave us one of these little mics. And we had to pass it back and forth, and he dropped it into the water glass. So that was sort of the end of the So Eric he was, was great. between us or something. Yeah, Eric was stuck in between, and <laughs> we had a blast. And one of the things right. that came out in the conversations was that we were aiming at very, very similar things right. and doing it in very, very different ways, different genres. Penderwicks and Outlaws of Time, you know, end up shelved slightly differently. Slightly. And handed to slightly different readers. And yet the whole world picture and the aesthetic that we were pursuing was almost identical. Right. And in many ways came back to that hideous strength right. from C.S. Lewis. So talking to her, even today, she said she just regret this. And it's fun to me. I can immediately flag the things in here that I know she will really, really love. And particular touches and moments. And I know that there's, there are these other things which she likes, but she doesn't try to write. And there's the things which I really, I like all of it. Right. But I don't try to write this stuff. Right. She does. And I'm writing these other pieces. So I do dark, more aggressive, fairly occasionally violent <laughs> middle grade fantasy. Fairly occasionally. And, yeah, fairly occasionally violent. And I have a blast doing it. And she writes you know, domestic drama. And yet it's vested with intense tragedy and loss and bittersweet healing and, and all sorts of things in there that I really enjoy in her work. And there's a commonality of the reality of pain, the reality of tragedy, but also the reality of healing, the reality of true conquest and the sun rising on the other side. You know, it's right. like and, and good triumphing ultimately, because that's the way the world is made to work. So anyway, we've had a blast together. We love the same British authors, right. but we also hate the same, <laughs> hate the same. Yeah. So there's a lot of affinities. A lot of, <laughs> already. Oh, yeah. So Jeannie and I had a great deal of fun. And one of the things that we've enjoyed is how different we are to the market. Right. And so the opportunity to do something <laughs> together is very pleasant because we are in completely different marketplaces. And we're even has, in different publishers now. And snake we had arms. to negotiate. We had to. So it's like, I have snake arms on the cover of mine. Right. And she has these adorable silhouettes <laughs> that are phenomenal. I've always loved, loved her covers. But if anybody put a cover like this on one of mine, there would have to be something monstrous coming yeah. in from the background. So she knows what I'm doing. And I really enjoy having Jeannie as a friend and as a fellow author because there's things that I put in my work that I know people like Ginny will catch. She'll see it and she'll know where the influences come from. She'll know where the headwaters are. So when I try to write mythic Americana, Western American magical realism, and then most recently in the superhero genre, and it can be very, very different. And yet Ginny will see it as the same. Like she'll see the same core, the same point. And she'll see the same things that we talked about one lunch in 2008 that I see in her work and have seen ever since and that she's seen in mine that we're both targeting. 
So it's a great deal of fun having Jeannie as a friend and even having Jeannie as a public friend here now <laughs> instead of just as an email buddy for eight years. Yeah, we are going a little rogue with this friend thing. We're not quite sure how our publishers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, oh, that's a marketing. Mm, it's like, wait, who do we talk to right. to get HarperCollins and Random House to let us do something together? Well, that um, was, it was, that was. It was, it ended up working just fine. Yeah, that, that's so, the way to put it. what I love in Jeannie's work, and I'm going to ask her a question here and let her talk, and then we'll have a, a brief conversation and open it up to you all. What I love in it is she doesn't pull punches on the emotional side of what she's trying to do, what she's trying to put her characters through. And this world is a real world with real pain and real loss. And, there, and little domestic dramas have death scenes too. And I could write a big superhero story and the consequences are death. And you can write a domestic drama where the consequences are death. You know, I, I said earlier, when we were today earlier, every fat-faced kid in the school classroom is going to have a death scene. Right. And they're all going to have loss like in, in their lives. Everyone, all of us will. And the stakes are real. And across genres, those stakes exist. So I love the emotional reality of it. Is this is not, Penderwicks is not saccharin. There's a depth to it that I, I really, really enjoy the bones and the architecture, the, the skeletal structure of the worldview on the, on the underside of it. But prose craft. Oh, prose craft. I'm going to ask you about prose craft. Oh, you why? 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 Why does it matter? You know, we just talked about this. That's I have why I'm to asking. pretend that we, no, we didn't just talk about No, you about didn't it. fully answer it. I, we oh, talked okay. about this briefly in the car. That's how I knew I could ask it. Okay. So first of all, every decision I make as a writer, every single one, depends on what I need as a reader. Yeah. And because I cannot read bad prose, I cannot. It's like, it's, it would be, it's like listening to music out of tune to me. So I need to write prose that I think is at least serviceable. That's one thing. And then the boredom thing is that we've talked about is that writing good prose is exhilarating and it's hard and it's never, ever, ever, ever boring. And one of the things that we've just, I should have known this, but we, now we know specifically one of the things we have in common is the boredom is absolutely intolerable each of us. And again, it manifests itself so differently. This is what I love. It's like, what? <laughs> you two are alike? Because we really manifest. He was in Sri Lanka last year or something. And I maybe went down the street. Maybe. <laughs> maybe I went down the street. But the philosophy behind it is that the only way we will, as humans, at the very least, continue to survive, at best, continue to evolve spiritually and emotionally and with grace, is through communicating. And if I can, more than story, if I can get into a reader's head with the richness and potency of good prose, then I feel like I will have done something. And on this note, to use a film example... Prose is really, really important to me. And prose craft matters a great deal because, especially in what I'm reading, right? but especially in what I'm reading of my own aloud to my kids or t even to myself or to send off to my editor, I'm always writing to the ear and pulling it out off the page and saying it and chewing on all the words. But imagine a movie with the worst acting you've ever seen and you could have the best script of the year become the worst movie of the year very, very easily. Like some screenwriter could execute the blueprints for a film, and that's really all a screenplay is. It, here's, here are your blueprints. They could execute the best blueprints of the year, bar none, of all time, and it could be the worst movie of all time. And this is because the actors matter. The flesh matters. When you actually take the story and you make it flesh, it becomes incarnate, and it goes out into the world, the execution matters. Now, with prose, words are physical objects. And we are physical people in a physical world. And when I'm talking right now, I'm plucking strings in my throat. And I'm sending physical waves through the air, hitting you physically in the holes in the sides of your skulls. It's like it's a physical thing that goes. And certain shapes and rhythms will affect you physically because they're physical objects. And you could take this book that we both love, that hideous strength, and you could rewrite the whole thing and have all of the same information. Like all the same information could be there, but you could destroy the flesh. 
you just absolutely dissect and mutilate the flesh and you could read it and say, what the heck is going on? I remember all of these data points from the story, but it's not up and living and breathing and joyful the way it is when Lewis fleshes it. And we both, we won't name names, but we both have a, a lot of contact with other writers and a number of them never give a thought to trying to make sure a sentence is beautiful or trying to make sure that the rhythm and the shape of a paragraph or a page suits the mood. They're just trying to entertain. And that's not bad. It's just, that's all they're trying to do. But it is, to both of us, boring. Right. So it might not be bad, but it becomes painful. Oh, it, it becomes, is bad. It becomes, <laughs> I'm trying not to be too judgy. Mm. <laughs> but, okay, fine. So somebody who just wants to, and if they, want, they just want to be efficient. Let's say somebody right. just wants to be efficient. They've got a pot boiler of a story, a little legal thriller, say, and they're going to just churn it out, and they're just going to tell you the story. Just tell it. The story's not going to come to life, and character's not going to be characters that you then know forever. And it, it is strange to me, and I know this is the case with the Penderwicks. That's the case with the Penderwicks for myself, and I want it to be the case. I know it's the case for me with some of my characters. I could have a kid come tell me about already about Outlaws of Time or flashback to Ashtown, about a relationship they have with a character, about a scene that they remember, and they remember it in a visceral way, like their own experience. And I could say, hey, what did you do two birthdays ago? Like, what happened in your life two birthdays ago? And they'll say, I, you know, I don't know. You know. They just, stories, action, experience, and concentrate presented poetically can stick and imprint in the memory very, very effectively and create vicarious experiences that are incredibly potent. So the execution, the final execution, sometimes you're just trying to get out of the way. But most of the time, you're trying to live up to the concept or live up to the blueprint. This is the character I really want to see on the page. This is the story I want to tell. This is the scene I want to give or the emotion I want to give to the reader. And so you have to, you can't just do it by telling them. You have to create these physical objects with rhythms, with their own percussion and score and beats that will match the mood and tone that you're trying to achieve. And so they get chills or they're moved or they feel joy or they have, they experience the catharsis right along with the character. And a lot of that has to do, I think, with the actual rumbling of the prose, you know, as far as the words themselves go. And you're one of the best rumblers. <laughs> you are. Rumblers. Rumblers. Yeah. I do like to rumble. And I think rumble bumble is a perfect example of the kind of rhythm I like. Right. Yeah. yeah. I read all of Nate's books, obviously, and reread them. And I reread this uh, miracle book on the way out because I had read it as an ARC, advanced reader copy. He sent it to me, which is how we ended up here together because I saw these themes that we were both working on and I thought it would be really fun to get together. Having just also reread That Hideous Strength in preparation for this, an overall theme that I saw in it that I think you really come up against over and over and over and over again is a protagonists having to make sometimes a life and death decision or a decision where he or she has to put the immediate family in opposition to all of humanity. Yeah. I mean, and that's not just here. That just felt so familiar to me that that's, Lewis does not, he does it a little bit, but he seems to me in a general way to put the needs of the individual versus all of humanity. I mean, Edmund, yeah. he wasn't just being disloyal to his family in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but to, but to good. And it's, yeah. but you were, that's a very, that's a, you're really, you're literally putting your people between a rock and a hard place. And I know because I read your books and because of who you are and because of the joy and the hope, that you will work that out. But it, you're asking a lot of your people, of your characters. Yeah. So, and I think in writing superhero stories, which I've never done until now, and it's still more of a fantasy. So it is superhero-esque in a classic old way, but forget the tights. It's like, we're not talking about tights. You know, I want to tap into the itch that created superhero stories in the first place, which is a very Old Testament rabbinical itch that came out of Eastern Europe and then to New York. And the old stories are, are wonderful, but they're echoes of the book of Judges and other things where they're you know, Superman and all these things came from Samson and so on. So I wanted to tap into that because also the same 
structure of story inspired the lone wolf westerns. So that isolated outsider who's willing to lay down his life for strangers. And I love it. There's, I'm like so love the purple sage. What are the, who's the purple sage? I can't remember. The purple sage? The, purple the sage. riders of the purple sage. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, there yes, we yes, go. Yes. There's so, I was yes, like, he's, you. oh man, he's been, he, when yeah. he was 10, he was reading some saying great thing. I keep finding these, these old yes. boy adventure things from different yeah. times. So when my mom finally got, got me to read something else other than Tolkien, <laughs> right. then the other influences right, would come right. in. Okay, sorry. Uh, totally so the Western, the Western okay. taps into the same type. And what you end up seeing for those heroes, for those old heroes, is always an obligation to the whole. Right. So. Moses is sent to save his people, like the people, the world. Superheroes are always saving the world. In the superhero genre, there's frequently a tension between saving the girl mm-hmm. and saving the city. Like, and the superhero always manages to save both. both. Right. And so I didn't want to do that. Right. When you have that, you have the situation, Sam Miracle has the choice between trying to save his sister and trying to stop this villain who's going to wage, you know, horrible. He's going to just totally wreak havoc on the West, the old Southwest. Or he can save his sister. And he can stop. He can let his sister die. And he can go do this. I don't want to spoil too much. But that's his choice. And I wanted it to be very clear that it's, no, you can't just hustle and do both. You know, the assumption is, yeah, okay, quick, grab the girl. You know, go save the world. And I just wanted to break that down. So I do want to resolve it. But in the real world, I think the trite, Marvel, modern version of superhero choices, mm-hmm. you know, the, the triteness that's there, and I enjoy some of it, I just wanted to kick against it a little bit. But the other, the other thing is that when you see a story where being magic, having any kind of power or ability is just fun, it just, it just bothers me a lot. It's, it wouldn't be fun. Mm-mm. Like, it would be pretty awful. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to capture the power, like the nature of blessing and curse of power and ability. So if you are Sam Miracle and you get snake arms, you get rattlesnakes in your arms, it's in some ways would be a bummer. <laughs> you know, I don't want to point a out few. the obvious. <laughs> but, so, but I also wanted it to be, and because it's middle grade, I'm also, I'd also try to tell it in a way there's humor, there's funniness, but his left hand is trying to kill him and his right hand is always distracted and wandering off. Because it's a sidewinder. Yeah. So the sidewinder snake. So you have a Mojave sidewinder in his left hand and a speckled <laughs> rattlesnake in his right. And they're very fast and they can see in the dark. And so there's benefits in the Old West. But it's also a real, there's comedy, there's dark comedy, but there's, he has to learn to control it too. He's got, his, right. his left hand's going to kill him or kill something else. He always has to sit on it. Uh, but this is a very like lighthearted downstream imitation of a Moses or a Samson or those early superheroes where someone is given some strength or some ability and it's immediately awful. Like it's awful. And then now because you have it, everyone is looking to you to fix it. So because Sam has snakes in his arms, suddenly he's the one who has to save the West. He has to save San Francisco from the vulture. Uh, because he can, and because he can, he must, and everyone can depend on him, and that will de- that'll destroy the loyalties he has to just his sister. And so I try to navigate all of those personal choices uh, in a way that are real, like that you can actually feel. You can feel the you can feel the tear. But mostly, on all the way back through Ashtown and back to One Hundred Cupboards, and before that, I always hated stories when I would read them when being the hero was about shooting the, the game-winning shot at the end of the game and just getting to feel good about yourself. And being the hero would be incredibly lonely, very, very isolating, and a very interesting literary experience if you could actually exp- fully explore it. So I always try to have real hardship and really painful choices, like actually difficult choices. I didn't want to just wave a wand and have it be easy to do everything, to achieve everything. So I'm finishing book two right now, and the consequences of Sam's choice you know, are currently what he's navigating. He makes that choice, and then he has to live with that choice, and he still has to try to, he's still working to sort of capture the whole. But uh, I love sending things to Janie, because we can talk about other things that I'm not going to tell lots of people. So like in uh, 
Ashdown Burials, there's a character she mentioned earlier to me where she reminded me, John Smith, Captain John Smith shows up in one of the Ashdown Burial series, and she called me on the, that's just Merlin from that hideous strength, isn't it? No, and I didn't this, say that's no, okay. that's not well, she the should way. Have. Either way, she, she <laughs> asked me if, if the inspiration came from. Are you riffing on is yes, probably what I yes. said. Yes, and the answer is absolutely yes, of course I yes, am. Yes, of course Of I course am. I am, right. absolutely. And she was the only one to ever ask that. So nobody else ever, ever mentioned Merlin and that hideous strength or the way Lewis uses him as a character, Waking, and John Smith in The Drowned Vault, Ashdown 2, except for Jeannie Bird's on an email. Well, so. that's one of, the, one of the, the crazy parts about this friendship that we shouldn't be friends is that we, we are the same kind of readers, very deep, and are always going back to that well, but we've <laughs> read so many of the same books, and it just doesn't make any like Yeah, anything. it's strange. Like, so... <laughs> It's great, it's but it is great fun. I'm looking forward to Merlin showing up in Penderwick's Five. <laughs> Some Merlin character. Yeah, no. I'll, <laughs> I'll still ask. I'll email and ask. But you might show up one? in that grown-up novel I want to write. There we go. We'll get back to the show in just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer and here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? <laughs> fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy top thing you can do to make sure your kids make delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay, so make sure you register even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. Yeah. Fantastic. There we go. Any questions from any of you all? Well, let's see if I can guess. <laughs> uh, we know C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and then P.D. James. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chesterton. Not so much. Not so much Chesterton. No. Allium. Chester Allium. Yeah. Chesterton, for me, is not as fiction, uh, except for Father Brown stories I really enjoy. He's very impatient, and so his fiction deteriorates. And so by the end, he just tells you what the idea was for the rest. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he moves on. <laughs> That's really, so it's always rich in concept uh, that he's got somewhere to be. And so it comes out. Are you as much of a Nesbitt fan as I am? I like Nesbitt, yeah. 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 But the, the Brits have dominated children's fiction right. for a long time. Right. And they dominated my own childhood right. and imagination and growing up. Right. And I'm very, very grateful to them. But there was, I really am tremendously grateful to them. But there's a huge amount of room to work. And so specifically, because I was a kid who could, after school, chase a crop duster with a BB gun and float down a stream on a chunk of styrofoam or, or climb up in a barn and almost die chasing pigeons, and then go read Narnia and think like, oh, I wish I had an interesting life. <laughs> and plus, which while we were at dinner, Heather got, Heather got a, a text message, I guess, with a photograph of at least one of her children on the neighbor's roof in a beehive. Suit, yeah. It's like, oh yeah. Well, it's this. Has we left that. home. We <laughs> left home. So one of my children is on the roof of the neighbor's house in a bee suit, trying to capture a swarm of honeybees off the neighbor's roof. This is so that kind of thing happens. So in it this isn't. Like, he's not one of these guys that like, oh, I almost died, so now I can't let my kids do any of this stuff. <laughs> so and I don't. I mean, I am a kid who shot himself between the eyes to be begun. Like, oh, did you really? Between the eyes, accidentally. Where is, is scar? No scar. It was. I was hitting the butt of a gun on the ground impatiently, waiting for my friend to set up the target. And then I thought to myself, I wonder if I should be doing this. And right when I looked down, it just, boom, just like right out the forehead. And at some point it will show up in fiction. But 
And I remember mostly the relief. And then being, you'll really get the letter. The, yeah, the, <laughs> the relief being immediately after, as it ricocheted off, that not that it hadn't hit me in the eye because I would be blind, but because I, so that I wouldn't have to go talk to my mom <laughs> about how this, how this had happened. That was, that was the fear. So I could have that life and still feel like, ah, you know, where's the magic? And really be committed to trying to write magical realism, starting with American kids in very mythic Americana settings and drawing out sort of the bones of this continent into global fantasy and mythology. Because I loved what the Brits did when they did it for the Brits. Right. And I benefited from it. But I didn't want kids to read my books and then wish they lived somewhere else. Right. Or in another time. You know, I want them to be excited about barging out their own back door after they read the stories. And I think the Penderwicks does the same thing. The Penderwicks takes an old, you know, something that was done. And this is even in the legacy of Jane Austen in some ways, but like pulled down and, you know, made younger and far more personal in a lot of levels. But it's again, it's in the legacy of the Brits. Like right. it's in this, it's downstream from the Brits, but it's, it's here and it's, it's American kids and it's, it's things that modern kids now can immediately connect to. And um, we both had kind of a same, a similar agenda. So for me, it's Wisconsin and Florida and Arizona, and I'm hopping around finding different cool, very American things that are not Middle Earthy at all. There are no orcs and drawing it out. And uh, she's been doing something similar. We're both an Americanizing. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that was that was odd to me was that I thought that I was so copying the Brits that the books will be popular there. I think we've sold more books in Vietnam than in England. I'm, but, I'm the absolute same boat. But the yeah. German, the Germans, the Germans. What's on? What's up with the Germans? What's up with the Germans? <laughs> <laughs> same thing, right? Yeah. So it's. But the Brits, like they, like I keep, I've been getting, I've been getting these things. Garden Street Zero every like for <laughs> five years. Like what? Come on, English people. Yeah, come on. Um, the big thing, I think the, the Brits are just very, uh, it's kind of like them ordering American suits. Yeah, why would they? Like, why, why would they order so American the British, suits? So right. like, the British tailors kind of... You've got Savile they, Bro. They've got it. Like, we've got yeah. this. We've got this. Stop talking to us about your, <laughs> your children's stories. Yeah. So it's, they have a certain snobbishness that they've uh, earned. Which they deserve. Which yes. they've earned. Which they deserve. And uh, we'll beat them still, eventually. Oh, we'll where are we? I will tell you that this book, Outlaws of Time, yeah, talk uh, about that book. came from a fever dream, and almost in its entirety. And it was, I was working for DreamWorks Animation, trying to come up with story concepts, and I really wanted a superhero story, but I, like I just described for you, I wanted one that was not a superhero story. How do I find a superhero story that isn't? And I couldn't. I just couldn't come up with anything. So I, I knew that I wanted that, but the creativity on the hero... The hero has to have some sort of authority or power or ability. And all of those were just lame. Everything I came up, like everything's been done. I couldn't have spider webs that come out of his feet, <laughs> but not his wrists. I guess I could have. But um, I just crossed it all off. I was like, yeah, okay, never mind. And then I had a very high fever, thank goodness, and went to bed and had this crazy dream about my arms being destroyed by this awful outlaw, this guy named the Vulture, El Butre. And uh, the name came later. And he shattered my arms from the wrist to the shoulder, six bullets in each arm. And my arms were in tatters, and I got dragged off by an old man into a cave in Arizona where he saved them by grafting rattlesnakes into my arms. And the one on the left was a horned sidewinder, and the one on the right was just a speckled rattlesnake. And I woke up fully confident that I had rattlesnakes in my arms. <laughs> and when I realized that I didn't, the sort of the adrenaline and the, the racing heart dropped because I just watched them be sewn in and uh, it faded. And I thought, fantastic. <laughs> like, this is like, yes, perfect. And the fever had broken. And by that night, I was able to go downstairs to the dining room table and I gathered up my focus group, my children, and I told them a story about a boy named Sam Miracle who had his arms shattered and destroyed and they were saved by this old man in the desert who dragged him into a cave and grafted rattlesnakes in. And I was testing it because I was thinking, is this too terrifying? Like, is this, I loved it. I was already fully in love with it, but I wanted to see like, okay, so I'm telling my kids, you'll see if the canaries die in the mine. And, and so I tell them the story 
And I'm telling them all the consequences. So when you have snakes in your hands. One of the kids is a six-year-old. <laughs> yes, yeah. She was four at the time. So, <laughs> so I tell her the story. Now, admittedly, the, I'm, this is a verbal story. If she passes out, I won't write the I'm gonna get a, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna get. I'm going to get a parenting award. Um, so I tell the story, and I'm telling the story about how your hands can see in the dark. Your hands are incredibly quick. They have their own minds, their own personalities, and you have to learn to control them, and they can see when you cannot see. And if a villain knocks you out and smacks you on the head and you fall down unconscious, both your hands will come up and look at him. Like, they'll still be there, active agents. And when you're nervous, you'll rattle because you have the rattles on your shoulder. And you have to find a deaf horse because every time you're nervous, the horse is going to buck you. Like, this is just... So I'm telling the whole story, and they fell in love with it far more rapidly than anything I'd ever told them before. So back to 100 cupboards and the other stories I floated to them, both of them, all, well, all of the kids were just staring at their hands and their hands were immediately, <laughs> immediately moving and they're trying to like think about what it'd be like to see out of their hands. Like, and what is it asking? How does it work? And like, so they're really quick and they all left. And I, for the, for weeks straight, I just got drawings from my kids just, drawings and drawings and different stories and one daughter was doing little graphic novel things you know floating them past me and different characters and they were they were just inventing they were all in and inventing and I knew that at that point like this is what I'm, I'm doing this is what I'm writing next when I told my publisher the woman I told was brand new at the publisher at Random House where I was at the time and was terrified of snakes <laughs> a snake phobia so I was like hey good news guess what my next story is <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it went. That conversation didn't go so well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was absolutely set on making this work. And in conversations, first it was like, should it just be a movie concept? Then later, should it be a graphic novel concept? And I just really wanted to write it. So I wanted to do it with prose. And one of the goals was, one of the attractions was, man, how hard is this going to be to write a character in a compelling and relatable way when that character is three? Like that character has three personalities and I have to track hands and moods of hands. And I have to track the personality of the left and the right over against the actual human in between. And the challenge of that was very, very appealing. And I enjoyed it immensely. And I rewrote this book more than anything that I had. I'm more drafts on this, a solid four and a half, probably drafts on this. And I'm usually like a two and a half to three draft writer. And I just kept working on it and trying to make them more and more sticky. That struggle doesn't show up at all. You did that really well. I had a lot of fun. It didn't even occur to me that that was a struggle. That's how well it was done. But also the... Because it completely makes sense. It made, you know, you, that's what you always do is everything always makes sense from the bottom up. There's never any, ooh. So you had that so internalized that as you were writing about it, it, it worked. There we go. <laughs> There's my blur from Jeannie Burtzell. It worked. No blur. <laughs> Just no blur. We have a blurb issue. We, yeah. um, we're so, gonna, we can write blurbs. But we're not allowed to publish them. Yeah. Oh, we're allowed to write blurbs. He says we made On behalf it. of each other. On she, behalf I actually, of each other. She specifically, actually did it once. Specifically, she can now write herself a blurb right. under my name anytime she wants. I gave him a blurb. It wasn't even a blurb. You just took it out of an essay. I remember the whole story now and say, can I use Don't tell the story. We're on camera. Okay. <laughs> I forgot. But you know what? You know, I had never, when you were, I you told the story about that dream. You've, you've written about it. And so, yeah. and this time, though, for the first time, I was like, yeah, I never have dreams like that. <laughs> and I thought, what an interesting way to think about where our stories come from and how our stories inform our dreams too. But I would no more have a dream with my arms <laughs> shut and snakes. I mean, I'm like, my dreams are I don't have a prom dress. I mean, it's so and I have the dream over and over and over. And it's, and then, you know, as always, I feel 
when we have these talks, I feel like such a pale shadow of a person. <laughs> a more stable human is a better no, way. To, is a better pale way to put it. Shadow the uh, the thing I tell my kids now, he if goes they have to a Sri Lanka and he dreams about snake arms. <laughs> the when my children have nightmares now, one of the first questions is, "Can I sell it?" <laughs> it's like, is it good enough to sell? And it makes them powerless. It makes them a lot more powerless. <laughs> when one of my kids comes to me, it's like. Horrible dream last night. Amazing. I'm like, okay, is it, <laughs> is it plot worthy? Do I need to get my pencil? <laughs> and uh, so far, no. But um, rarely, like people ask about other books, where did this idea come from? And I can point to an influence in the execution. So with Lee Pike Ridge, yes, I floated down a creek on a chunk of styrofoam. Cupboards, yes, I lived in my grandparents' attic for a while and I found a door in the wall and I climbed in and we wriggled through tunnels. But there's no magic. But they, that, that didn't inspire the story. That's just once the story was underway, there's an influence. This is one of the only books where when kids ask, as they always do in schools, where did you get the idea for the story? I can say, I know the answer to that question. Right. I had a horrible nightmare. Yeah. And I hope you love it as much as I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, do I have time to ask him another thing? Everybody okay? So one, you keep making these jokes about your kids as a focus group, which is sort of a joke, but also very true. Somehow, you, I can only assume that you're writing for them and for yourself at the same time. I mean, I, I have, I can only be writing for myself as a child, but then I don't, I don't have children. I have stepchildren, but that's an interesting balance that you're going through while you're doing that. I mean, do you actually make Glory a strong character, thinking my daughters need balance? Do you Absolutely. have this conscious? Yeah. Those? So okay. as a, the Glory Spalding, a female character in this book, who takes is a, she moves a lot more to the front in the second book. And I like her but a she's lot. She's very, very, very rich in this first book. Yeah. So I, I really love her as a character. But when I'm writing, I am writing for an audience first of five. And as a, as a creator, I'm writing for myself. And I'm writing for myself in the fifth and sixth grade, that daydreaming kid who wasn't doing his math. And I'm targeting that imagination and, and my own right now. I'm chasing the kinds of stories that I love. But I'm immediately, as I build characters and plots, I'm thinking of my kids. I'm thinking of specific kids. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, no, she will love this. She'll love this. Like, mm-hmm. this is going to be great. Because they, they all have unique personalities and different tastes and things that are going to jump out to them. My sons and my daughters. And Glory especially. I, a lot of girls and a lot of girls in fiction bother me. But more, more girls in film bother me than girls in fiction. Yeah. But, so I think about role models for my daughters or friends even more than role models, like friends and allies in their own quests to live good lives. You know, so, and I want them for my daughters. So Gloria is very much, I was very conscious, especially with Glory, the whole time about my own girls and shaping this friend for them. Mm-hmm. Same thing was true of Ashdown. Mm-hmm. You know, so, oh, yeah. so Ashdown... Antigone Smith was there, but the one that I was really shaping as the big sister, like the big inspiring sister was a character named Diana Boone. And, right. and I knew how my daughters would respond to her. And they did. Like they really, yeah. they think of themselves as Antigone, but they really admire and look up to and befriend Diana Boone. But none of this seems to, or you, you don't talk about it at all. It doesn't seem like you live with the fear of disappointing your children. There's still no. a, a very personal. Yeah. Um, It's like you're inviting them to come along with you. But if they say, I'm going to skip this trip, dad, is that okay with you? Yeah, no, it's not a, not a problem at all. Some of my kids will want to read every draft. Okay. And I will let them. Which kids? Uh, My daughters, my daughters, my son, Rory, my oldest, he wants to read, he wants to read it finished. Okay. So he'll listen to it if I'm reading aloud, but he wants to read it when it's like, when it's all the way done. And I don't blame him. And my daughters are far more interested in can I read it now? And can I read it again? And have you changed anything? Can I read it again? They want to understand they, the process. Yeah, the whole, yeah. the whole thing. And as a side note, if you've done a ton of drafts of something, it can be easier to remember a book I've read than a book I've written. Mm-hmm. Because I'm thinking like, wait a second, did I put that in? I know, did I, or did I take that out? And I know it was in two of the drafts. And then I thought about taking it out and did it. And did I, or did I move it? There's, yeah, yeah, did I move it? And there's so many iterations of the story, starting with when you're lying on your back, staring at the ceiling, imagining the story. 
And then you outline the story. And as you're writing the first chapters, you're thinking about what the end is going to be. And you can see it, but then you get there, you change your mind. Right. And then you send it to the editor and they have edits. And so you think about changing it again. And my son hates going through that yeah. with me. He just wants to give it to me when it's over. <laughs> like I'll, I'll read it when it's over. He read out lots of time. I read it to them in the very first draft. And he didn't want to read any interim drafts until, until it was done. And my daughters were begging for printouts you know, every step of the way and getting them occasionally. You know, and in different ways, they all are, but totally differently. And my oldest daughter is the most conscious about it. And she's really, you know, actively in pursuit in some ways. She's always creating stories. She's always making books for her little sister and stapling them together and doing cover pages. And she's very invested in the creation of the artifact of the book, not just the story. She loves the story and she loves to illustrate as well. And then, but as far as my sons go, Right now, my youngest son, if he wrote stories, it'd all, it'd be, in fact, he did this. He had to write a story in second grade, and he wrote a basketball game, and he just detailed every play. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, he just, yeah, he did the play-by-play. Oh, actually, that's even better. Sorry, that makes it even, even funnier. Second grade animal report. And so he wrote about a cougar basketball game, and it was just a play-by-play. Yeah, so so he wrote a play-by-play play of a cougar basketball game. <laughs> yeah. And that in that way, he was very much like me because he didn't get a good grade and he didn't mind because he still enjoyed the process. Of, he didn't get a good grade. It was an animal report. He was supposed to be reporting. So yeah, he was fine. But anyway, it's the answer to the question. Yes, and I have my oldest. Even when he was five, I was working, and he he came in and said, "Hey, can I tell you a story?" Into my office while I was writing this. I said, Absolutely, you can tell me a story. And I stopped and he said, Okay, it's called Harold the Adventurer. And it's a story I'm still gonna I'm still gonna steal from this. Like we have it, but we have it documented because he said it's about a kid who was so good at hiding and he knew every secret doorway and path in this city that everybody quit playing hide and seek with him because he would be gone for three days. You know, it's like they just couldn't find him. Harold the Adventurer <laughs> could go anywhere and so then he has this whole thing where he finds like when he's hiding in this game when finally somebody challenges him with hide and seek and he disappears again he finds this old dry well and he falls into it and there's a broken shield and there's this werewolf den that he finds and i was kind of like wow this is from my five-year-old <laughs> so so he, and he kind of ran out of gas around all the broken armor and the werewolf but the concept like harold the adventurer the concept of night uh, the kid who can just disappear like the kid who can just hide and vanish, and nobody else will play with it. As a result, yes, this is. And I love it that he picks so, such an old-fashioned name, like thirteenth century. So I have it. I still oh. have. I sat there. And I took notes when he pitched this to me, and I wrote them down, and I pinned them to my wall on my computer, and they're still there, sitting there. And he's fourteen now, and so I still have that piece of paper. And he can come in, he laughs, and he looks at Harold the Adventurer, and I tell him, if you don't write it, I will sometime. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see if any of them pay for his college education. Yeah, get on it, kid. <laughs> Pretty awesome, right? I am so grateful they shared that interview with us. Thank you, Jeannie Birdsall and Indy Wilson. Thank you also to Heather Wilson, who did a lot of the behind the scenes legwork to make it available to us here at the Read Aloud Revival. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. Hi, my name is Taylor. I'm 11 years old and I live in California. My favorite book that I've read is Sophie Choir and the Last Story Guard because at one point you could be jumping over rooftops fighting monsters with a blindfold or you can stop and wait and wonder and think about what just happened and It's an amazing book to read. Hi, everyone. My name is George Kiros. I am 10 years old. I live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My favorite book is Dear Mr. Henshaw because it is about a boy who is having trouble with his life. He has a very rough time in school, and he likes writing to his favorite author for advice. 
Hi, my name is Annie Kiros, and I'm five years old, and I live in Winston-Salem. My favorite book is Winnie the Pooh because he always falls down and climbs up the tree. My name is Clara. I live in Toronto. I'm six years old. My favorite book is Swallows and Amazons. I like it because children go to live on an island, and I like how they figure those things out on their own. What is your name? How old are you? Three. And where are you from? Toronto. Toronto. What's your favorite book? Owls. Owls? Owl babies? Owl babies. And why do you like owl babies? Because we read it. Because we read it? Yeah. What do you like about the story? All of us. I like reading it because the mama comes back. The mama comes back. And then to use it and then to bring them food. My name is Josh. I'm nine years old. I live in Clarksville, Tennessee. My favorite book is Sam the Minuteman. It's about the Revolutionary War. And the father takes his son out to stand up against the British. And they are terribly outnumbered. And it's so exciting. And I'm probably going to read it again. Hello, my name is Emma Hart, and I live in Wheatfield, Indiana, and my favorite book is The Hobbit by Tolkien, and my favorite part is when the Hobbit saves his friends and kills the spiders. Hello, my name is Anna Hart. I am nine years old. I live in Wheatfield, Indiana. My favorite book is The Sign of the Cat by Lynn Janelle. My favorite part is... When Duncan is at the island with a tiger. My name is Ali Hartnett. I am four years old, and my favorite book is Switcher's Gay and GardenDex.com. Hi, my name is Lily. I live in Michigan. I'm five years old. My favorite book is The Quilt Maker's Gift. I like how when the king started out, he was greedy, but then when he started to get nicer, he shared with his gift everyone. Thank you. Okay, so August 1st, season 11 begins. We're kicking off the season in a conversation with a youth services librarian. If you're wondering how you can make the best use of your public library and how you can support your local library, this episode is for you. No need to feel intimidated. What could possibly be one of your most powerful family resources Amy Commerce and I are going to hash out tips to help you use your library well. That's August 1st. In the meantime, make sure you join the email list. That's at readaloudrevival.com. It takes two seconds to do that, and then you won't miss a thing. Our August picture book list goes up next week, and the email subscribers see it first. So join that email list, readaloudrevival.com, so you don't miss out. I hope you have a wonderful week, and thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Go make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Mm-hmm.